session with Dr. Farid Polaku. Good afternoon and welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolaku, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes. Again, our studio number, 310-441-0555. Well, Happy New Year to everyone. This is uh, my first show of 2019. It's going to take a while to get used to that. Uh, but I wanted to wish everyone a very happy New Year. And probably, uh, if it's on today's show, the next show might talk a bit about... Um, goals and resolutions, something that many people set but don't necessarily keep, but talk about some ways to make it more likely that you can reach those goals. And also, I'll be continuing the books of the week and speaking of New Year's goals. It was a goal I set two years ago to, at the start of 2017, and so this will be the third year of doing the books of the week for the show. So I'm always looking for book recommendations, so please send them my way. Many people have done that over these two years, and I appreciate that, so please keep sending those my way. And so before I begin with the book of the week that I was the last book of 2018, the first book for 2019 is An End to Upside-Down Thinking by Mark Gober, An End to Upside-Down Thinking, dispelling the myth that the brain produces consciousness and the implications for everyday life. And I don't know much about this book, just saw it at the bookstore, and uh, several, several of the books I read this past year talked about consciousness. So I wanted to see what this book, which is a new book, talks about. As always, uh, I don't know much about the books I've never read before. And so sometimes I know when I post a book online, people think I'm endorsing the book. But really, oftentimes I don't know what the book, uh, I might know what it's about, but I don't know really what it's saying or if I agree with what it's saying. Uh, and that's why even sometimes I'll avoid more controversial books or books by people who I might think I don't want to endorse for that very reason, even though sometimes I think it's good to read books from people who have differing opinions from yourself, because that'll help you understand them and even maybe recognize the errors in your own thinking. So nonetheless, I try to be a little conservative in the books I choose, but this one, I'm not sure exactly what Mark Gober is going to talk about in this book, or if I'll agree with it, but I will read it and share it with you on Monday night's show. All right, the book of the week that I'll talk about today is Suicidal by Jesse Baring. Suicidal, Why We Kill Ourselves. And this book was, as you can imagine, very heavy and dark at times because the topic of suicide is a very heavy one and a very dark one. Uh, But really, this was a great book. And later on today, I think I'm going to do my top 10 books of the year. And this made the list because I really did uh, enjoy this book and thought it was very important and meaningful for me to have read it. And even the dedication line is for the suicidal person in all of us, which I liked because I think sometimes we think of suicide as something that some people 
experience and others don't. But some level of suicidal thinking or ideation or yourself having attempted or knowing someone who has is very common and almost everyone is affected by suicide in some way. Uh, he quoted a statistic that globally one million people a year kill themselves by suicide. One million people. It's a really large number. So uh, it's something that affects many people. And even that idea of the suicidal mind or the part of all of us is that really any of us could potentially get to that point. It's something I talk about a lot that we can sometimes judge other people and think that they have done an act that I would never have done. But really, if we're put in a certain circumstance, we might find that we too might commit that act or might do that act. And actually, I just said the word commit. And in talking about suicide, we want to be aware of the language we use, something I'll talk about that comes up in this book. Um, but he talks about many really interesting things related to suicide in this book. The first one is even, or not really the first, but one of the first things that comes up is the idea of, is suicide uniquely human? Meaning, do any other animals um, kill themselves? And he talks about many theories and some people who believed for a long time that, yes, there were animals killing themselves and they'd have these stories of how it happened. Um, but I think I agree with the conclusion he seems to make at the end, which is that no, no, no other animals actually do kill themselves the way we think of it. Maybe they're stuck in a situation and they do something that looks like they're killing themselves or they run off a cliff, but it's not because they're running off the cliff to take their own life intentionally, but maybe they're being misled in some way or startled or they hear or see or smell something that's drawing to them to uh in, in, in essence, killing themselves. Um, but it's not actually this intentional, I want to end my own life uh, kind of a thing. And it's really more us anthropomorphizing and thinking if I was that animal or if I'm trying to understand or interpret what that animal is doing as a natural psychologist that all humans are, then I think this is why that animal did X, Y, or Z. So he says it doesn't seem to be the case that animals do this. So it is, in a way, a uniquely human thing. But then we have to say, well, why is it so? And then he even talks about some theories that people have of, could suicide be an adaptive thing, which can sound so backwards, but is there some kind of way that it evolved that we kill ourselves? Could there be any kind of benefit? Or is it some kind of byproduct of our brains or some form of just psychopathology that gets us to that point? And, of course, there isn't clear-cut and black-and-white way of looking at this to say it's this or it's that. But he talks about many different theories about this. So, for example, um, one theory about why it could be adaptive is if you yourself see that you won't be able to reproduce or create, uh, pass on your own genes, you might feel that you're wasting resources. So it could be, in a way, evolutionarily adaptive to no longer be alive to not use resources so it's more likely resources are used on your family members or they don't waste them quote unquote on you um, to make sure that your relatives have a better chance of surviving and in that way your genes would pass on so there there is that way of looking at things or the idea that sometimes if you've committed a bad act by taking your own life you will 
reduce the shame or the impact it'll have on your family because it'll feel like, well, you're kind of paying for your crime, so they won't have to pay for it. That one, I, I guess there could be some validity too, but really we see that people who have family members who have taken their own lives, they experience their own stigma. So it's not necessarily like it makes everything easier on them, but there could be ways that this would potentially make sense. But there is something to the way at least the suicidal mind thinks, which is that the people around me would be better off without me than with me. Um, or even really the suicidal mind can be so focused on the self that they don't even they can't even think of others, um, which he talks about in the book. But sometimes people think I'm doing more harm by being alive than if I were to be dead. And that can affect their thinking or their decision making when it comes to suicide, unfortunately. Because very often people will say, well, isn't it selfish to take your life if you have family members or even especially if you're a parent and you have kids that are depending on you? But very often we see that people who are suicidal think they're actually hurting their family more than helping. And so they don't see it in the same way we might see it. And in my own understanding, I think something as complex as suicide, there isn't one explanation or they're not all going to be the same. So to say every person who is taking their own life, is died by suicide, did it for the same reason. Of course not. Um, but I do see it more along the lines of a type of thinking that has gone wrong, that the depressive mind, and not everyone who kills themselves is depressed, but the mind, when it gets to that place, it can't see things really quite so clearly. And so its judgment is going to be colored by the way it's feeling. This is what is so in a way interesting and fascinating about humans is that we're trying to understand ourselves but trying to understand our brains and our minds using that same brain and mind to understand us and so when you try to look at your own life and if it's worth living but you're the one doing the thinking and the evaluating as much as we can say it's a rational decision we know it's going to be colored by so many things so to me there is uh, again a range of reasons why people take their own lives but I think in the overwhelming majority, we can say they're not processing things quite correctly at that moment. And they themselves, in a different state of mind, would not want to end their own life, would not take their own life. And he uses this line that he himself says is a little bit cliche, which is suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. But as he says, sometimes people's problems aren't temporary. But I think what's important is that the way you're feeling in that moment more than likely is temporary and that it won't always be that you'll feel that same way, that dark, that down. And so because of that, I am a believer that we should try to prevent people from taking their own lives. He even talks about that. Should we take stop people? And there's even some lines of thought where people say, well, it's a freedom of choice. You're technically not harming anyone else if you do it in a way where you don't harm anyone else. And of course, emotionally, people might be harmed, but that can be your choice, just like any other bad decision that other people might think you make, as far as like marrying someone or having an addiction. And even those questions come up with addiction. When can you intervene? When is it okay to have an intervention, whether it's official or not? But when are we supposed to do those things? And these things are not black or white, and that's why he has a whole chapter called Gray Matter, where it's looking at, we can't really just say everything in these situations is black or white. I think for a lot of people, they think of suicide as black or white, that no one should ever do it. But I think it's complicated when we look at the actual situations of how we can or should intervene or should not intervene. 
again, I'm I'm more in the camp that almost always it's something that should not be done. Can there be rare exceptions? Maybe, but almost always. And because of that, we should try to stop everyone who we can. If you tell me someone is uh, right now next door on top of the building thinking of jumping, and I would, if I could, I would stop the show and run over there and see if I can talk that person down because I'm a believer that we can have a purpose or meaning in life. Most uh, situations, almost all of them, it won't be the right choice. So I always want to intervene because, again, it's a choice that you can't come back from, which is why also I think we need to intervene. Now, speaking of uh, coming back from, he has a chapter where he talks about uh, afterlife or how the beliefs or thoughts about afterlife can affect whether or not people attempt suicide. And as he mentions in the book, for a long time and still in many religions, it's considered a sin to take your own life. Um, it's considered one of the worst ways or worst acts you can commit, even though often it's not in the actual scripture. It doesn't really show up in the Bible, for example, but it's been considered one of the worst things you can do. And because of that, you're not supposed to do it. Even sometimes you're not supposed to be given a proper burial or uh, throughout history, your family would not get to keep your things, your property and your belongings if it was deemed suicide because that was considered a crime. Or even in some countries, I think he says in New Zealand till 1960 something, um, if you attempted suicide, it was considered a crime, which is uh, quite interesting. Uh, but anyway, it's interesting dynamic when people think of an afterlife, very often that punishment can make them not want to take their own life. But sometimes that belief that there could be something better might make them want to get away from this horrible life that they feel like they're living and go and, and live some other life or be some other place. It gets complicated when they might think, well, I won't go to the good place because I'm killing myself. But nonetheless, it can have uh, an interesting effect. It's not always that it's a deterrent. And even he mentions how the studies that show that being religious makes you less likely to um, commit suicide or to take your own life. Uh, it might not be about the religiosity. It might not be about religion. It might be more about the network and the idea that by being part of a social group, this protects you from um, becoming suicidal, not the religiosity itself. And that's why even it's the people who, for example, regularly attend a church who are protected more than it's just someone who firmly believes in the religion. And we are social beings, and I think a big part of being suicidal is that feeling of isolation, feeling not loved, not connected, not accepted, not even accepted by yourself, uh, usually. And so that's a big reason why people take their lives. But if they feel connected, if they feel loved, they are less likely to do so. Um, and he talks about even how the love of one person can be enough to keep someone from taking their life. And he also shares a, a story, and I've heard this before too, and he says, People sometimes think, is this a real story or is this something kind of made up? But it's uh, this idea or the story about this uh, man who took his life jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. And it says that after the fact, the psychiatrist and the uh, members of the county assistance medical examiner, they entered his apartment and they found a suicide note and it said, I'm going to walk to the bridge. If one person smiles to me on the way, I will not jump. And of course, he did jump, which means that not one person smiled at him. And I've heard this story before said in different ways, so I don't know exactly 
if it was the same story or if people kind of made up their own version of it. But nonetheless, it seems to be an actual story of someone who went to take their own life, jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge and said, if one person smiles at me, I won't jump. But unfortunately, no one did. And so he mentions this to close the book. And it says to not forget how our kindness or altruistic acts can actually have a big effect. And I think a big part of um, suicidality has to do, again, with feeling ashamed, feeling alone, feeling that no one loves you. And so if we can feel that love, it can have a big impact. But this book really, you know, obviously always when I do these brief summaries in about 15 minutes, it's never enough to cover the whole book. There's so many interesting things he brings up related to um, being suicidal and to help us better understand the mind of someone who is suicidal. And very often we don't know what's going on in someone's mind. And we might think someone's okay, but they might not be. And so uh, even clinicians, he mentions, are not very good at assessing suicidality. That was something that really um, shook me and made sense, but made me have to reconsider how I even approach this concept when it comes to my own clients and people I work with. But uh, this is a great book that I highly recommend, Suicidal by Jesse Baring. Um, and again, the book of the week for this week is An End to Upside Down Thinking by Mark Gober. All right, we've reached our first commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hello? Yes, hi. Thanks for calling. Oh, no problem. How are you today? Good, thank you. Um, yes, I am the person who called last week. Um, you mentioned that you want to start from the scratch. Would you like me to start or would you like to say it? <laughs> yeah, well, I think I, I remember you calling, but just also to refresh my own memory. But if someone was not listening last week, if you can briefly describe what we talked about uh, so people have an idea, let me know. I know you said it was something about a breakup. Yeah, so there's this, um, I just broke up with my guy. Um, that was like 32 days ago. Mm-hmm. And um, the breakup happened because I felt that um, the person I was dating with, he was controlling me, always telling me what to do and how to speak and how to wear things and all that, just like controlling in general. Mm-hmm. And um, he also fake promised me about stuff. He also what? He, really, he also lied to me. Lied. Like, okay. um, you know, um, promising stuff that he wasn't ready for. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't being very communicative, so that's something that hurt me a lot because I'm a very communicative person and I say stuff that I really feel and just like to know about it and see what the other person thinks. Mm-hmm. And we also talked about how I end up with controlling men and also men who are not serious about me and not sure what they want from life. And that was it, yeah. Okay. And then was it, did you start dating someone else or no? That wasn't the situation. Um, I didn't start dating someone else. I've been on my own for 32 days now. 32 <laughs> days, but who's keeping track? Right, okay. So you have an exact no- day of uh, how long you've been dating and uh, or not dating. And I remember we talked about you going to therapy. Um, is that right? Um, well, I, I don't I didn't have the money for the therapy. So what happened was I found this um, self-caring app that has psychologies on it. And I signed up for the premium and I'm listening to the self-care and everything. And okay. I've learned so much about myself. I wasn't sure if that's something we would like to talk about. Well, we can. I mean, that's going to be different than um, therapy itself. 
if you're getting a lot out of it, that's good. So I'm not saying to stop doing that. Hopefully it'll help you. Uh, no, you said- I learned so much from myself and everything that's been going on. And I can't um, see where I'm going and everything. Okay. That's yeah, good. something um, I want to talk about is that I realized why I'm ending up with controlling men is because um, I actually had a controlling father, mm-hmm. always, or family in general, controlling family, and always telling me, like, well, how to wear dresses, how to act a certain way, because if I don't do that, guys wouldn't be attracted to me. Mm-hmm. So I have always had to listen to them, but most of the time I try to not listen to them, and that ends up being an argument. Well, that's, you know, that's the thing. We tend to create the same dramas from our childhood. So it seems like you're doing that same thing, that even though in your childhood it seems like you didn't like it, so if someone asks you, you say you didn't like it, and this is what confuses people. They say, if I didn't like something or some quality of my parent or parents in my childhood, why would I choose someone who is that way? But what happens is usually we didn't solve the problem in our childhood. So because we didn't solve it, we still have this desire to fix it or to work it out. So a lot of times people will, for example, be with someone who is, in your case, controlling, but they say they want to get the control. Or they're going to be with someone who's angry, but they're going to either control their that person's anger or overpower them or be so quote-unquote good that the person won't get upset and they think that's going to be the solution. Most of the, Almost all of this is happening unconsciously. So there's that part of wanting to solve our past through present and future relationships. And the other part is that even though it doesn't feel good, it feels like home to us. It's comfortable because we've experienced something. It can feel good. And this is why we have to always be aware. We have to ask, why do I like something? Why does something feel good? It's not enough to just say, oh, I like this guy. I like this girl. Or I'm feeling good when I'm doing this or I'm doing that. We have to try to figure out the why. Because sometimes the why is good. I like this because it's good for me. I enjoy it. Great. But it could also be, I like this because it's actually really bad for me and it's actually reminding me of my past. And if we don't realize that, that's not good. Just like uh, a more extreme example would say, just because something feels good, obviously we don't say, well, this drug makes me feel good. I should keep doing this drug. We have to pay attention to what's going on. So in your case, it seems that because you experienced this controlling um, concept as a child from your parents from your family you somehow find yourself attracted to these kinds of men even though then you don't like it and then you create that same drama from your childhood where you're fighting or rebelling against the controlling man but what you have to realize is you're choosing that man to begin with and so like many people you're putting yourself in a specific type of jail where you get stuck and then you hate being there but you have to realize you're putting yourself there and so now you can try to learn not to do that anymore. Yeah, so what I've realized is that the first thing that I'm really afraid of is loving myself and being alone on my own mm-hmm. to making sure that I enjoy life. And that's what I've learned from the self-caring act. And I'm always, like, during my childhood, I always realize, like, I always blame myself about my parents' arguments, my parents' fights and all that. Mm. And I think I created that um, blame it on myself. So when I was in relationship with someone controlling, I always would say that it was my fault. And even if they said it themselves, I would accept. I always wanted to change, but I just felt that I wasn't enough for them. I wasn't yeah. enough to make them happy. So I just feel that, um, I just learned that I have to love myself and feel that I'm enough and not worrying that if something is on my fault, I shouldn't be blamed for it. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't 
feel down on me because I had that self-doubt all the time, thinking that I could make things better when I couldn't. Yeah, I wasn't enough. So. Did your how did your parents make? Do you remember feeling that way from what they said, or do you just felt that way that it was your fault that they were fighting? Um, sometimes I would say something. For example, if we were sitting like on, on the uh, dinner table, and I would say something, or I would comment on something to my dad. He would not like it because he's a person who would love to just force his thought on you mm-hmm. and not allowing you to say anything else other than that. So he would get into an argument with me, and my mom would defend me, and then the argument starts a lot. Like, mm-hmm. the whole fighting, arguing would start, and that's something I would always be scared of, to speak my mind, to yeah. say that I have a thought, I have a feeling, I have my mindset, and I have to be able to say it and express it and not be afraid of it. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's just another example. There's so many ways that this can happen, but where a child can internalize that their parents fighting is their fault. It's cliche because you hear it all the time when uh, parents are getting divorced that the kids blame themselves some way and they usually do. And so as parents, we have to be so aware of the effect our arguments have on our kids, even if it seems like we are arguing. So it's not about them. Kids can very much internalize that. So in this case, because it started with you saying something to your dad, at least that's how you saw it, your parents fighting, which probably had more to do with their issues than about you, um, and it's definitely not your fault that they were fighting, but you took that as it's my fault, this is why I shouldn't say what I think or feel or voice my opinion because I just want to create peace. And so you take that with you to your relationships now of I shouldn't create a problem or I shouldn't say something when it's on my mind even if I'm with someone who's trying to control me, which, again, you might be attracted to as well. So that's tough. Yeah, yeah, because I always thought, like, even in my relationship with the guy that I knew that I didn't like the way he was talking to me or acting, but knowing that if I said something that I knew I want, I was always afraid that I would lose him Mm. and feeling lonely again. So I feel like the loneliness, that's the part that scares me all the time. And, you know, the loneliness is also... uh, Many people experience that. And it's interesting. It's It sounds paradoxical. But in order to not feel lonely when we are alone, because lonely and alone are not the same thing. You can be alone and feel very good. You can be around many people and feel lonely. But to really feel uh, okay being alone, we have to actually have experienced a good and strong feeling of love from our parents. And from their love and being there with us, we internalize that love and can actually keep it with us even when they're not there. And so because you never, it seems, got that feeling of being enough, being loved just for being you, when you're alone, you don't feel okay, and you need someone to give you that good feeling. But unfortunately, you create these bad relationships where you don't seem to get that. But it's this paradox that we need that attachment to feel okay being alone. And most kids don't get that appropriate attachment, or many kids don't. And because of that, they're not okay alone, and they're seeking someone to fill that void, but it's not going to be filled by someone else, unfortunately. So um, it's good that you are becoming aware of these things, and maybe the app has helped you. I would still recommend going to therapy. It can be expensive, but it will likely be even deeper than what you can do through the app and and on your own. Um, But I'm glad you started somewhere. And... What you have to do now with the awareness you're having, and this is something I always tell people when it comes to, it's just good to know yourself in general, but especially when it comes to dating and relationships, is that you have to know yourself. And what that means is first know your history, 
know what you went through in childhood, what hurt you about what your parents did, what you got enough of, what you didn't get enough of, all of those things. And then especially understand your parents. What were their good and bad qualities? And especially their bad ones, you have to understand. What were the ones that hurt you the most? And then when you are dating someone or even just want to date someone, you have to, in essence, prove to yourself that this person doesn't have the bad qualities of my parents. You have to be able to convince yourself, I'm not attracted to this person because they are actually like my parents in a bad way. Because we know that tendency is so strong in us, especially if we had a painful childhood, we have to make sure we're not being attracted to someone for the absolute wrong reasons, not the good reasons. So we have to do that kind of an inventory for ourselves first, and then when you're meeting someone, do that same thing. So I'd recommend that to you, that if and when you feel ready to date, ask yourself, is this person or does this person show any signs that are like my parents in the negative parts that I didn't like about them? Is this man controlling? Especially for you, that's a big one. And and ask yourself those questions to make sure um, you know what you're getting yourself into. And I have another question. Mm-hmm. Um, it's different than this one, but um, my last question is that um, I'm feeling um, lonely in my friendship, and I feel like it's due to the fact that my close friends are actually starting a new phase in their life and they're getting married mm-hmm. or in their committed relationship. And as a single woman, I just feel that I don't have that close connection and I, as I used to have, even though they're okay. my best friends or friends. And my question is, how would you start making new friendships and where do you start? Well, first of all, how old are you? I'm 28. 28, okay. And so maybe some of your friends are... Um, going into new phases of their lives. And it doesn't mean those friendships have to end, but sometimes they do change when you feel like you're in different phases. I don't think it has to be the end of the friendship, but if you don't feel comfortable or if you feel like they don't want you around or whatever it might be, you might not feel as close to them. Making new friends at 28, it's harder than when you were eight because when you were a kid, you go to school and you're meeting people there constantly and it's a lot easier to make friends at 28 it's harder to get around people to meet them. And also most people have their friends. They're not always looking for uh, new friends or, you know, um, uh, people to meet. So that does make it harder. I mean, you can always try to go to places where you're doing things uh, that are mutual interests. For example, if you like art or if you like poetry, or if you like something, go to classes. That's all, sometimes a good way or even exercise classes. And you have to try to make yourself open to meeting new people, knowing that it's going to be hard. Again, at the age of 28, it's a lot harder to make friends. And when you're younger, it doesn't mean it's not possible. Have you recently moved to a new city? I have recently moved to okay. L.A. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And well, it's very different because I left behind um, friends that were close to me. Even though they were in committed relationships, I was able to see them at times. Well, yeah, that's going to make it harder too. coming to a new city and maintaining friendships when you move. We know that friendships are going to change when you move. You can still talk and stay in touch, but there's definitely a difference. Just like in a romantic relationship when it's long distance, it's different than when you're able to see each other regularly. So you're going to have to put some effort into making friends, going to uh, events, going to classes, going to different things that are things that are interesting to you. That could be a good way to start, but you know you have to make that effort, and it's not always so easy, but hopefully you'll make that effort because especially what you've talked about being alone, we definitely don't want that loneliness to push you towards dating maybe even the wrong person 
just to avoid that loneliness. We don't want that. So it can be good to have some strong friendships to help you with that too. So I would just say it sounds pretty simple, but going to different events, making an effort to, to put yourself out there to make friends and, and see how it goes. And of course, what you do in friendships, it's kind of funny. We talk so much about dating because people ask so much about what should they do, not do. But about making friends, we often don't think of it that it actually takes some effort and it's not so easy. It's not always um, so simple. And, you know, so I have other people on the line, so I want to get to them. But um, good luck with that. Thanks for the update. Happy New Year. You too. Thank you. All right. Thank you. All right. Reached our next commercial break. We'll be right back. back studio number three one zero four four one zero five 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 let's go to a caller radio hamra you're on the air hello dr hi thanks for calling and thank you for having me on the line and sure. happy new year happy new year to you too thank you thank you i have two questions mm-hmm. my first question is about the uh, about the children i heard from the other dr Hulakli's cds that children can be like a best university for their parents and parents can learn a lot from them Mm -hmm. and i was wondering what does that mean exactly and how can i learn from them okay um are you do you have children yourself yes i have a three years old and uh, one uh, the other one is uh, almost 18 months okay um you know so when we say you're gonna you can learn a lot from your children and from being a parent obviously we don't mean to have your 18 month old um, create a PowerPoint presentation and teach you about some topic but to me when we when I even interact with kids myself I feel like you learn a lot about many things first of all just about yourself because kids romantic relationships bring up a lot of our issues but parents parenting can bring up even more different types of things about yourself things that you maybe forgot from your own childhood. Um, because if you're not aware of these things, you're going to unconsciously take them out on your child. But also just seeing how a child develops, how a child learns, um, the ways they approach the world. Children, maybe because of their inability to think in certain ways, but they think of things in a way that sometimes is good for us to recognize. For example, children are much more uh, present or much more mindful than adults or adults we have to really work at it but kids just naturally are a lot more present and mindful than we are they're in the moment or for example kids are much more resilient than most adults are you look at any child learning how to walk and they're going to fall hundreds if not thousands of times but they never once think about giving up or thinking i can't do this they keep going and going and trying so there are so many ways that we can learn from uh, our kids and from being parents uh, and also, if you're a parent with someone else, if you're with your husband, there's a lot you're going to get from that of learning how to work together. It's challenging, just like anything. If you do go to a university and go learn, it's going to be very challenging to learn. But um, it's through that challenge and through that those growing pains that you do actually learn a lot. So I'm wondering, tell me about your own experience. Is it that you feel like you're wondering, am I getting enough out of this? Am I approaching it the right way? Tell me about what made you ask that question. Um, it was just um, very interesting for me that um, I heard that um, Dr. Hulakui, Dr. Parang Hulakui, mm-hmm. says that you can learn more than even a university. 
and um, from a child. Um, I'm just wondering that um, wh- how can I learn from that? And I um, just uh, the point you just pointed out was very clear for me, and I, I actually got it. Uh, the, the subject I understand uh, what you mean exactly, but the only thing was that um, bringing up these children. I know that's a big up, um, big opportunity and very good thing for myself. I just want to be clear mm-hmm. uh, what uh, things I should uh, be and, you know, careful about that and try to, you know, focus on that and think about it that can, you know, affect my personal life as a parent or make a better person of myself, mm-hmm. um, my personality. Yeah, yeah well, I, I think as far as making a better person of yourself, you know, we can't fake it to our kids. So, uh, they can, they'll see who you are over time. And so we do want to work on ourselves as a person because our kids are going to learn from us. We can tell them one thing, but if we do something else, uh, it's very e- evident to them who we are. One big thing, it just came up with a conversation I had recently with someone when you talked about, you know, what can you learn from them, but also the things they're going to learn from you is the way you approach the world. They're going to pay attention to that unconsciously. And if you're happy about life, if you like life, if you're trusting of people, if you're kind to people, your kids are going to see that. And especially if you're the way you talk about people and parents, sometimes they don't realize your kids are listening to everything you say. So when you're judgmental about other people, which a lot of times people are, they'll talk about other groups or individuals and behaviors they do. And they think, well, it's not about my kids. They don't have any of those qualities, but your child just picks up on your way of talking about people, that some people are good and some are bad. Some things you do make you lovable, and if you do certain things, you'll become unlovable. And this sends a very bad message to your kids. So for me, it has to be genuine, but I think it's very important to have this mindset of a much more accepting, kind, loving approach to the world, because your kids are going to notice that and understand that, and they're first of all going to internalize that about themselves that mommy or daddy will still love me no matter what, but also it'll affect the way they look at the world. If you make the world seem like a scary place where you can't trust anyone, then they're going to take that in. If you make it seem like the world is a good place where you can expect to be loved and taken care of, not in a naive way, but to have an optimistic mindset, I think that can be very important. So, of course, there's a lot you can learn, but your kids are going to learn so much from you. Thank you very much. Sure. I have a lot to work on. <laughs> Parenting is, on is them, yeah, that's probably the hardest role you'll ever have in your life is to be a parent. So I'm sure it's something you'll have to consistently work on as, as everyone does. Yes. And you said you had a second yeah. question. Yeah. The second question is about uh, myself. And um, the question is that I'm very sensitive about the bad things that happen to people. Anything, even I heard about the people I don't know at all on the news, on the TV, if something happened especially about the kids, it's annoyed me for weeks. And even when I see this on the TV, I see that uh, like little kids have to walk. As I saw yesterday, I, I have it in my mind for even weeks and just annoying me. I get very, very, you know, sensitive to the, especially kids that are abused, kind of. and. I don't know, I think that I can kind of relate this to my kids or myself, just very, very, um, I take it very hard. 
Well, you know, the fact that those things bother you makes sense. It might be you're saying the amount that it bothers you is what you're worrying about, especially because you have your own kids. Uh, so a few things come to mind. One is, did you feel this way before you had your own kids? Yeah, even when I didn't have the kids, um, okay. like like when I when I I was in Iran when uh, um, you know um, the government of Iran was killing some people on the street um, uh, because of some you know political issues in Iran, and mm-hmm. that was the reason I came out from this country. I'm living in China right now because I couldn't take this. I couldn't see that uh, lots of people you know are dying and they are easily killing people in the street. That was the only thing that made me to take this decision and leave that country forever. I, I don't want to go back to there. Um, I'm just saying that, um, like you said, I, I take it very, very hard. Yeah. And, and again, it's something, so it's, it makes sense that it, it, you don't like it. Of course, no one likes to hear. I'm very sensitive to people in general, but especially to children. That does affect me a lot now but we also want to look at those your own childhood if you felt like as a child you were hurt or treated unfairly do you remember feeling that way yes yes mm-hmm. very much yes okay so tell me about that how did you feel that way um i had um i didn't have a very good childhood at all mm-hmm. my parents my parents were not you know, were not educated. They didn't know anything about parenting, how to, to treat a child at all. And they were very, very unfair. And just uh, so much bad stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, clearly there's a lot of pain there. And even you, you said that word unfair. And yeah. so, again, not liking when a child is being mistreated, I think, is good. Everyone should feel that way. That's a healthy response. But it does seem like the way you're saying it could be so extreme. That's why I asked you about your own child could because it usually means it's triggering something in you. You're seeing yourself as those children or it's bringing up your own feeling and you said unfair. So when you talk about a child having to work, that's very unfair and not just and I'm sure it's bringing up your own issues. And this is why we say it's so important for us to heal our own wounds. It doesn't mean the pain completely goes away, but to have a better connection or relationship with what we went through because it makes it less likely that things will trigger these feelings in us. So again, your response makes sense to not like it. It's how extreme it is. It's just like if someone pokes your arm, you might say, ow, but if someone says, ow, and for a week says their arm hurts, we say something is too sensitive about their arm. Something is being triggered. There must be some injury already there that the person poked. So for you, it's understanding your own childhood. And even, you know, you talk about parenting and it's very good to learn parenting techniques and ways to do things. That's great. But if as a parent, we haven't dealt with our own childhood pains, we're very likely going to still carry that into our own children. And so for you, what you might even do, you might go to the other extreme. You could go to either way, but you might say, I don't want my kids to feel any pain because I remember how painful my childhood was. I'm not going to let my kids have any pain in their life, which sounds good. But what that also will mean is that you'll likely prevent them from having some experiences that they need to have, because sometimes life is going to be uncomfortable or difficult or even have some pain that can be good and healthy to help us grow. But you might be afraid to let them feel anything because you'll say, I remember my childhood being so painful. I don't want my kids to ever feel anything bad which actually isn't going to be good for them. 
So this is what I would want you to do is to try to understand your own childhood better and to even try to heal that those wounds from your own childhood before you have it affect the way you parent your own kids. Okay. Does that make um, sense? Do you think you can have that feeling of not wanting your kids to feel any pain because of what you went through as a child? Um, I'm not sure exactly mm-hmm. how to answer that, but I just uh, always tell my husband that I want them to be happy no mm-hmm. matter what. I just want you know, them to um, to just doesn't feel like I did in my childhood. So I do my yeah, which, which makes sense. And again, you know, when I hear you say that, I want my kids to be happy on the surface. It doesn't sound bad and it doesn't have to be. But sometimes when people say I want my kids to be happy, what they also mean is I never want my kid to feel any sadness or any pain, which isn't healthy because your child is going to cry sometimes and it's okay. But if we sometimes have this feeling of I never want them to cry, then we can try to do too much to take away their pain or we don't even let them experience their sadness or their pain. And so I tell parents a lot of times, your job isn't actually to make your kids happy, as in happy all the time, that my kid has to be smiling all the time, happy all the time. Your job is to actually help your child face their feelings and deal with life and make them feel okay, no matter what they're feeling. Of course, you're going to take care of them and try to make them feel good when you can. But overall, we want to make sure we don't get to a place where we think, my child should never cry, my child should never be sad, my child should always feel good, because that's not the reality of life. And if we feel like our own childhood was so painful and we hated that and we never want our kid to experience that, we might go too much to the other extreme and never let them experience the natural pain of life, which actually can help them grow. Okay. Yeah, I guess um, I'm, I'm in this situation, like you said, mm-hmm. that uh, I don't want them to feel no pain at yeah. all. Yeah. Yeah. There, yeah. Yeah. So I want you, you know, at, at, at the age of like, for example, 18, you almost can do that. They, you know, the baby cries, they need something, you give it to them. But especially even with like the three-year-old, slowly the three-year-old is going to ask for things that you have to say no, and they might not like it. Or let's say when they start going to school, things are going to happen that makes them sad. And it doesn't mean we don't care or we don't do anything. But we want to make sure we don't take away their sadness immediately without trying to let them understand it. So your kid goes to school and someone does something mean to them at school. We show them a lot of empathy and sensitivity, but we want to make them feel it's okay that they're sad. We understand they're sad about what happened. But what a lot of parents will do, they'll say, well, I don't want my kid to cry about what the person said to them. So I'll say, who cares what the person said? We love you. Everyone loves you. You'll find other friends. Don't worry about it. Don't be, cr- don't be sad. Don't cry. And that's what I want to make sure you don't do is to take away your kid's experience of sadness when it comes up. Because inevitably it does. It's part of life. And so that's a very important piece for me that I see with a lot of parents that it's coming from what they think is just love. I don't want my kid to be sad. But unfortunately, what they do is they invalidate their child's feelings and the child doesn't get to actually feel okay about some of these very natural feelings that they have. Thank you very much for this wonderful explanation. My pleasure. And the other thing is that uh, I think that I have a kind of uh, obsession with this stuff. And uh, uh, like you said, I, I, you know, hold them in my mind for weeks. Yeah. And it's um, about other things as well. Let's say I, I start shopping from a store for a week. And I do that for a month. I just shopping, I start shopping from that store for a month. And then after two, three months, I, I go to another store and start shopping on that 
yet it, that's the whole thing in my life. I always start doing something and keep doing it for months mm. and then put it away and start something else. I, I understand that it's a kind of obsession yeah. or something. Is that right? It definitely sounds like obsessional, definitely obsessional and also like a fear of change. So you want to keep things exactly the same. Is, how does that can affect um, my life? Is it like a very, very bad thing? I well, I, I mean, I don't want to, I'm not so, you know, labeling it as very, very bad or not. Uh, it can have an effect, of course, but to me, I'm hearing it maybe makes you hard to change things or be flexible. Are you that way with other things that you like things to be a particular way? Like things have to be this way, and if it's not that way, it really bothers you? Honestly, for some stuff, yes, I think it, it is. But for other stuff, like in moving from my country to yeah. another country, it was so easy for me. I did that decision and I did it right away. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes yeah. it's very easy and sometimes it's not. Well, yeah, which, which can be the case. And sometimes when someone feels like in their whole life they didn't have control over a lot of things, then when they can control things, they almost can go to an extreme of trying to control it completely so they don't want anything to change. So if you had a lot of change in your life that was out of your control, then sometimes when you have control over something, you want it to be exactly a certain way or you don't want to change it for, let's say, a month or two months because it makes you feel more comfortable. So you probably had to go through some really big changes that were very difficult, but then now sometimes with smaller things, you try to control it completely because it felt so uncomfortable to go through that change. So your question of, is this a really bad thing? It depends on how it's affecting your life always. If you like to shop at a store for a month, that's not negatively affecting your life. But then when, if it comes to your kids, you have a hard time dealing with them in a flexible way. Yes, that could become a problem. You know, that's where I'm more concerned. You can shop at any store you want, as long as it's not hurting your family in some way, let's say financially or physically. But if your kids, for example, need to make a change and you say, no, it has to be this way, that's where it can become an issue. So I, for me, I'm hearing uh, inflexibility. That's where I could see it being a problem with the kids. And I know you're very focused on helping the kids, and that's great. Uh, but as always, helping yourself will help the kids more than anything. So if you find yourself stuck in this obs- obsessional type of thinking, um, therapy or even medication, but I'd always recommend therapy first, can help with that. So that's something to think about. And even the way you said you can obsess about, um, for example, the stories you hear about children who have been hurt in some way, it seems like your brain does function in a kind of obsessional way. There's things like meditation that could help you. I would recommend doing that. But it could be more powerful than that. So I would consider therapy and even medication to help with what you're dealing with. Actually, I um, I used to see a doctor, a psychologist, um, back in Tehran, and he took medication, and I was okay for a while. And but um, when I moved to Canada, I um, I haven't started seeing a doctor yet, and I guess that uh, issue came back easily. Again. Yeah, so I would say do, do that. About, yeah, I would yeah, see so a doctor. I about uh, doing neurofeedback or something other than taking medication. Well, I, it can help. I, I mean, I think not everyone gets the same results from anything. So I don't don't want to tell you do neurofeedback because it might help. It might not. It can be helpful for obsessional thinking. I would say first go see a therapist, not just a medical doctor. Go see a, a psychologist or a therapist and then with him or her work on uh, the issue and see what you can do. 
because that way you can also look at your childhood as well. Thank you so much for calling. Wish you all the best. Uh, yeah, I wish you all the best. Thank you so much for your great show. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, going to our next commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to another caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. Yes, hi. Yeah. Thanks for calling. Yes, how are you doing? Good, thank you. Good. Uh, I actually have a question that's a bit more serious than the previous things. It's about my sexual relationship with my wife. Okay. Um, so, it's a, it's a bit of a long story. I don't know where to start. but. Uh, well, how about tell me, how old are you? How old is she? How long have you guys been married? Okay, I'm 37. She's 34. Mm-hmm. And we've been married for about seven years. Okay. Any kids? No. Okay. All right. Um, so, yeah. Um, before marriage, you were, like, in a long-distance relationship for about three years. Mm-hmm. And um, we did have some sort of relationship, but we didn't actually have sex before marriage. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, when when it started, uh, everything seemed fine to me. But like within like first, I remember exactly maybe it was six months or a year. Uh, she kind of brought up that uh, she was thinking maybe she's I'm not as attracted to her as I should be because we're not uh, the frequency is not as much as she thought. Mm-hmm. So uh, she thought you weren't that attracted to her because she expected you to want sex more. Okay, more frequently, okay. Yeah, and then I kind of said that, like, uh, oh, I was thinking maybe this would come up because, like, I, whenever I, like, compared myself to other people I knew, I always felt like their sexual drive was more than me and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Like, in terms of before marriage with other people, how they were, or um, even, like, how much they were talking about masturbation and stuff, I was never that adamant about it. Mm-hmm. So, and then I was like this, and then she's like, oh, it's fine, like, whatever, this and that, and then we moved on. And then if I can get an idea, what, it seems like this was earlier on, so maybe things have changed, but what was the frequency back then? Um, I can't really say exactly, but, like, maybe it was, like, a couple, few time, couple of times a month or something like that. Okay. Um, but at first, I, we went. We didn't have our own place either. Like we were staying my parents' place for a few months. So then at first it was like even less. But then when we got our own place, like it was a little easier. But then again, it wasn't as often as I sh- it should have been. Mm-hmm. Um, and you also said never, you guys didn't have sex together before marriage. Had she had sex before you? No, she didn't. Okay. All right. Yeah, she was like a virgin before mm-hmm. me. But I had I had girlfriends and stuff before. Okay. Um, so then that kept on for a few years, and I guess it got less. Sometimes it was more frequent, sometimes less frequent. Or like if you were away somewhere, like for a week or something, it was definitely more there. Um, like on a trip or something, when we were having fun, it was more. But then, like in regular life, it wasn't that much. And then, like I think it got less when like she went to work. Uh, and also, like, my work got a bit more serious or, like, 
um, if you were like working out more frequently and you were more tired or whatever and then again like it kind of got brought up once I, I think once but maybe even twice like but um, and I was like um, I kind of got very defensive about it and stuff mm-hmm. like I was like oh well you know I can't I don't have the energy to do like to be uh, that active like uh, it's not like I don't want to, but like I can't. Like I get like if we go to bed earlier, maybe. And then she was like, "Oh, I don't like to plan stuff. I want to be spontaneous." And but let me ask you: uh, Was it really about energy, or really you just didn't have the desire? Um, I I always felt like I had the desire, and I like whenever we actually were there together, it was a lot of fun for me. Mm-hmm. But like as I said, like I didn't like I would feel turned on like at times that maybe it wasn't the time to do stuff but then at the end of the night I wasn't maybe turned on or uh, I felt like uh, maybe it was in my head that I kept thinking about oh my god it was going to take too late I'm not going to sleep enough or I would think about other stuff that weren't as important but for some reason I, I thought it was they were important mm-hmm. do you do you do you feel like you might have any anxiety related to performance um like how how you will be with her sexually, how it's going to go. Because some of what you're talking about seems like almost an avoidant type of way of looking at it, like trying to find reasons not to. Maybe it was that, that way. But unfortunately, I didn't, like, we didn't look into it, like, or maybe, like, it was more, I, I understand it was mostly my fault. I should have talked to someone or seen a doctor or something, but I never did it that way and then she never really pushed it that much to for me to say you, know, you have to like fix this or anything mm-hmm. and then uh, it got worse like uh, and then a couple of things happened that now it's like our relationship is, is even worse like uh, I guess as I said like uh, like I would get sometimes maybe it was like sexual frustration for my part I don't know what it was but like I got like I would um uh, I sent a few like text messages and stuff to like uh, these like illegal massage people and stuff, just talking and like asking about the rates, what they do, and all that stuff. I never actually did anything, but like I did that a few times in the middle of the day when I I don't know it was like felt like I was doing something maybe that kind of turned me on. Mm-hmm. And then uh, she found out about the text and read it and stuff so then she got really upset and we talked about this was back in February last year so um, and then during that talk and she's like well now like after after that like we talked and I said like it's not something that I ever actually acted on or it's like nothing meaning about our relationship or love or anything I still love you a lot and all that stuff and I think it was like maybe some sort of uh, some sort of thing that kind of developed like a little perversion and now that it has come out it's, it's gone away and then uh, so after a week or so like she was fine and she said like I, I'm fine with it I don't have an issue but I, I like at first she was mad and she's like I can't see myself be with you again like sexually but then like when she forgave me and like, we moved on we never really talked about it and like I never from then on I never really even tried to make a move because I thought you know like she's mad like she she has to do something and stuff and nothing happened and then again in, in the summer when we were away to, from each other 
And, like, I always had, like, one of her friends always talk to me and stuff, like, texting or whatever on apps. And uh, it wasn't anything out of the ordinary, but, like, I don't know, what again, like, what happened, but, like, it kind of developed into something a little more. Again, it wasn't, like, something that I wanted to do with sleep with her or anything or none of that kind of con- conversation came up. But... Um, <clears throat> So, you know, clearly... There were a few things that yeah. came up that was, like, uh, inappropriate, little, maybe out of line. And yeah. then, again, my wife found out, and this time she got uh, a little more mad. And then we, like, again, talked a lot. And then we actually saw, like, uh, I saw, like, because I felt really super bad. Like, I wanted to die. And, like, I was really upset that I've done this um, because I love her so much. And we, we really cherished our relationship. So I saw, like, a therapist and then... That helped me a little bit to come out of that kind of hole that I was feeling so upset. And then she also, like I told her, maybe she should also talk to someone. At first she said no, and then she talked to the same person. But that, at the end she actually got more mad because she was like, I feel like the therapist is pushing me towards um, divorce, but I don't want it and stuff. <clears throat> so then afterwards, again, we kind of... After that, like I, wake, like, I felt like I was awakened after that because, like, it came out. And then I looked back at the whole life, and I, I told her I realized I've made mistakes. Like, I shouldn't have been this way. I should have looked into this more seriously. I should have talked to people. And uh, even, like, the whole relationship as a whole, I thought, like, you know, like, I can see myself clearly now. I can see, like, that part that developed was, like, Maybe out of frustration or anything, and it well, I'm, let me it. let me stop That's you there for a second because we about to, we have to go to a commercial break. I do want to continue. I know you're saying that part of you that developed, but what I'm hearing more and more is that you were having a hard time allowing yourself to connect to your wife. So it wasn't frust- the frustration you were creating the frustration, it, from yeah. what you're telling me. Unless there's more to it, and so it does seem like there's a lot of hallmark signs of fear of intimacy that you're talking about, and that's why I said even the ideas of, well, I don't have the energy or I'd want to have more sex with you didn't seem like it was ringing true. Although the energy part does also concern me in the way it could just be the way you talk, but there's a feeling of depression in how you talk. And so there could be that as well that plays a factor in what's going on. But to me, it seems, and even this idea of, you know, approaching the random people or approaching her friend, it just seems like you were trying to get away from getting close to her. And the sex was one way of doing that. or And that's why I asked about if there's some kind of performance, anxiety, or if it's not sometimes just about performance, about the closeness that sex will bring that you are trying to protect yourself from. So I hear less frustration and more um, you weren't able to allow yourself to get close unless some of the frustration was that there was things maybe you wanted to do sexually, but you didn't know how to bring them up with your wife. And we can get into those things after the break. So um, let's get a little bit more into what was going on, because to me, what you you seem to be talking about has a lot to do with more fear of getting close or maybe an idea that sex is something bad, so I shouldn't be having it with my wife and thinking of her in a certain way. We'll talk about these different things after the break, okay? Okay, thank you. Sure. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadir Luck. We will be right back. اکبر جون به پا طرف قرمز رو رد کرد اوه اومد اومد 
ای داده بیداد داغونمون کرد آقا فری شما بشین تو ماشین من میرم حسابشو برسم کجا میری اکبر آقا جون با اون انگلیسی وصل پینه طرف آمریکاییه آمریکایی باشه الان انگلیسی مثل بلبل جوابشو میدم بیشین تماشا کن هی سر یدیدی 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 چی بهش گفتی اکبر آقا؟ چی؟ بهش گفتم تا بیخ مقصری وکیل دارم عین شیر مثل کوه پشتمه تا قرون آخر خسارتم از تو بیمت میگیره پوستتونم میکنه ولی اکبر جون شما که فقط 20 بار گفتی یدیدی اصلش هم همونه تصادف کردی فقط بگو یدیدی کامران یدیدی دکتر کامران یدیدی انتخاب اول و برتر در تصادفات 818-999-999 مسافرین محترم و بحال چمه دونا رو ببندی تور نه روزه مصر از 18 فوریه از سری تورهای بی‌نظیر و رؤیایی سیروس تراول ویژه اونایی که تعریف تورهای قبلی رو خیلی شنیدن و یا اونایی که میخوان دوباره بهشون خیلی خوش بگذره سفر به قاهره اقامت در هتل 5 ستاره با بوفه کامل صبحانه و نهار لذیذ و خوشمزه دیدار از لوکسور اسوان و اسنا و کروز سه روزه 5 ستاره بر روی رودخانه نیل در انتهای سفر دو تا انتخاب دارید یا سه روز و دو شب گردش در کشور زیبا و باستانی اردن و یا سه روز و دو شب سیاحت و استراحت در سواحل زیبای دریای سرخ که All You Can Eat and Drink برای رزرو و دریافت اطلاعات کامل به وبسایت سیروس تراول مراجعه کنید sirustravel.com c y r u s travel.com تلفن 800 332 97 87 تور 9 روزه مصر از 18 فوریه سفر با سیروس راول همیشه خوش میگذره چرا رامین آریان قیمت های غیر قابل رقابت و متنوع ترین مدل های مرسدس بنز برای انتخاب بهترین قیمت برای تریدین در تعویض اتومبیل قدیمی با نو چرا رامین آریان پروسی راحت در خرید و لیس مرسدس بنز در کمترین زمان دلیوری رایگان بنز به سراسر کالیفرنیا. رامین آریان در مرسدس بنز آنهایم تلفن 855 996 29 66 855 996 29 66 با رامین آریان از بنز فقط بیل نگیر دیل بگیر الو محمود کجا این چرا نمیای بابا گم شدیم توی بلوارم بغل آپارتمان جلوشم یه تابلو فروش نوشته حامد خاجوی خب درسته دیگه کوچه رو بروش بیا دست چپت یه خونه بزرگ سفیده جلو اونم تابلو خاجویه صد مد اومدی یه خونه تازه ساز روبرو خونه ما اتفاقا تابلو خ... برداشتش جون تو دو هفته ای فروختش بیشان جان تو دیگه آدرس نده به همه بگو برای رسیدن به خانه ما خاجوی جان رو دنبال کنید نبز بازار ریل استیت در جنوب کالیفرنیا در دستان حامد خاجوی تلفن 610-633-4945 عضو 38 اگه از من بپرسین اتومبیل مورد علاقم چیه و منم بگم رویز رویز آیا از من میپرسین چرا؟ معلومه که نه چون رویز رویز چرا نداره حالا اگه از من بپرسین که برای ترمیم و کاشت مو به سراغ کدوم پزشک و متخصص باید رفت جوابم اینه دکتر پارسا محبی www.parsamohebi.com
بچه های خوب بگیم ببینم شنبه ششم اپریل چه روزیه؟ جشن تولد رادیو همراه شنبه شش اپریل دول بی تیتر هفت و هفت دقیقه Back before the break, we were with the caller. Let's go back to him now. Caller, are you still there? Hello. Yes, hi. Okay, so okay. you were talking about um, your relationship, especially, especially the sexual relationship between you and your wife. You guys have been married seven years. Um, and as I mentioned at the end, I heard a lot in what you were saying that seemed to me more about a fear of intimacy and closeness with your wife. And that's why your desire was less and that even you were seeking some relationships or even at least some... excitement outside of the marriage yeah i would call it excitement yeah I, i never thought about anything else yeah right which even that even sounds like it's more about it being in your head than actually experiencing it and that also can be related to the fear of actually being with her and it's interesting because people will sometimes think well in a fantasy the reason why we like fantasy is because it's so exciting because anything can happen and it can be crazy and wild and all those things but actually in fantasy it's in your brain so you have complete control over everything that happens and so it's actually a lot safer than being with someone in true intimacy where even one moment of it is unpredictable because you can't control what the other person actually does and many people have those fears of uh, intimacy in different ways but when it comes to sex because It is unpredictable. How are they going to respond? Will they like it, not like it? Will they expect something from me? All those various things that can go into it can create an anxiety that actually leads to people avoiding being sexual with their partner, not because they're actually not attracted to them, uh, but because of this anxiety that prevents the attraction from really playing out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, like most of you were saying, like you hear some... sort of depressing tone in my voice yeah. the reason right now is mostly like um like after that happened like uh we have actually been together a few times but then afterwards like whenever we talk and stuff we get again into arguments and then she's now like she's very down like constantly before this she wasn't like this and then um the way she talks is like she's saying like even recently was saying like Um, I don't know if I can enjoy being with you anymore, and um, that stuff is very de- depressing to me, obviously, and I tell her, like, you know, we can't continue to be together if this, that's the case, because we can't be together for 30, 40 years and never be happy in that terms, and then she's like, well, you know, I was like that before, and you never did this, and, uh, and all of that, and I, I told her maybe, if, like, it's kind of your... Um, self-defense kind of unconsciousness that because you got hurt you kind of don't want to and then if you try to understand that that stuff is past and now we, we want to move move towards our future and all that and, uh, it will help and then first she said I'll, I'll, I won't promise but I'll try but then again like if a few days later she said like I don't think I can do that on my own well and, she might uh, be right I wouldn't call it necessarily self defense or even that self-defense is wrong if we've gotten hurt in a certain way it's hard for us to let ourselves get hurt again and for both men and women but even more for women 
to be sexual, they have to feel very comfortable and that feeling of trust and safety has to be there. And so it could be she's saying she feels she's lost that with you. It doesn't mean it has to be lost forever, but I agree with her that you guys have to work on it. And so I know you're saying you want to move on and just accept that that's part of the past. And the past is the past, but it doesn't mean the wounds or the effect have just gone away because it's in the past. So you guys yeah. will likely have to work on these things together in order to go forward. And something you mentioned about the therapy, uh, two people seeing the same therapist individually over the long term is not a good idea, husband and wife. Um, so I would recommend if you guys have individual therapists, they don't be the same person. But I think it would be a good idea for you guys to go to therapy together because it seems like you guys yeah, have we, some big relationship actually, we, issues. Yeah, we only, we only saw that person once each and okay. she didn't like that. Also, then I stopped. But now, like, I'm thinking, now I was, like, mainly I was giving you all this information to know, like, from her point of view. Because right now I'm, I'm ready to do anything, obviously. And, I, like, even right now I feel like I want to be with her all the time because, like, I want to, I want to, I want her to be satisfied and, like, happy. But, uh, like, I, I now see my issues, like, from the past, and I wish I could go back and, like, fix them before all of this happened, but obviously I can't. But, like, from her point of view, like, um, do, you, do you think, like, it's something that we can fix? Like, we can, like, because she's saying, like, because I've, suppressed my sexuality because it wasn't enough and then I've like done masturbation so many times I've, I've used to that now I don't even know if like I feel like I've lost interest in sex she in says that about herself or about you about herself okay so her yeah. interest in sex is less yeah well she says like I can't really like when it, the last few times we've been together like even afterwards she's like I I kind of was feeling like, oh, I, I hope it's over soon or something yeah. like that. So, Well, I mean, I, that you know, you're asking me, can you guys get past this? And there is no black or white to it. In some level, it seems like she feels like you were unfaithful to her, even if you didn't necessarily act on it. But still, to me, you know, texting her friend, that would be an act of unfaithfulness when you cross that line. It doesn't mean it has to actually be physical uh, for it to be unfaithful. And so her trust is broken. So right now we have to accept that we shouldn't, I get this feeling you just want things to be okay. Let's have sex and have sex in a way that feels good for both of us and everyone is comfortable. She doesn't feel comfortable. You can't force that. And so you have to yeah. be patient with her that it's not just going to go away because we want to just move on. And that's the problem it seems like you guys have had throughout your marriage is just let's just move forward and not address the problem and avoid what happened. And that's part of why you guys are where you are at is avoidance. So we have to do the opposite. You have to go face all the issues. And so if you go to therapy together, which I think you guys should, you're going to have to face a lot of uncomfortable things, feelings, uncomfortable conversations, and you have to be ready to face that because that's the only way. The only way out is through. It's not just, okay, it's in the past, let's move on. Because even your own past is affecting you. And I would hope if you go to couples therapy, you yourself go to therapy to try to better understand what's going on with you. Why are you afraid of getting close with her? Why are you not uh, allowing yourself to experience that with her? Where are those anxieties coming from? Because I think as much as you can say, now I can look back, it's very easy to look back and say, I shouldn't have done that. But then if you go forward, it's possible you'll find yourself in these same places if you don't do something different, if you don't understand why you got to where you got to, not just I shouldn't have done that act that was bad, but what led yeah. to you doing that action. Yeah. Um, so like what sort of uh, therapist 
would you recommend, like in terms of their experience or expertise, that would work best? Well, you might. I, well, what's for the both of you for yourself? Yeah, for both of us. Well, I mean, obviously, a couples therapist, but someone it would be good if they have experience with sexual issues. Most couples therapists do. It doesn't have to be just a sex therapist because. It doesn't seem like your guys' issue are just about sex. It's not just like, okay, we have this good relationship, but somehow sexually we're not matching or able to both be satisfied. There's definitely much more going on. So it's not just about sex, but it is related to it, and that's a big part. So a couples therapist you both feel good with, you have to both feel comfortable with him or her, um, and then go forward, but be ready to commit some time to this. It's going to take some time. You know, you said you guys both saw that other therapist once. That's as if you guys didn't even go to therapy. You know, one time is not really even going to have almost any effect. So you have to be ready to commit a several months of going every week at least to then see what's going on. And especially for you, I get this feeling that you want to avoid the, the problems and we need to face them. And even talking about sex, you said you guys didn't talk much about it or she brought it up after maybe six months, a year. And then again, you didn't talk about it for a while. And this is something I urge to couples all the time. You have to talk about all aspects of your relationship, including the sexual relationship. But many couples avoid talking about it for some of the reasons you brought up. That, for example, you said you took it personally. Or that she felt like your lack of desire or initiating sex had to do with her, uh, you not being attracted to her. So she took it personally too. And they are sensitive topics, of course, but a relationship has to be able to withstand these types of conversations. And if we have them in the right way, and if we have enough of a loving foundation between the partners, it can withstand these conversations. So I always encourage uh, husbands and wives, couples to talk about their sex life, not just assume it's okay, both in, you know, frequency, are you satisfied in the sex? Are there things you want to do that we don't do? Are there things that we do you don't like? Whatever else it might be, we have to have conversations. It's a very important part of the relationship, as you alluded to. But interestingly, as much as people will acknowledge it's important, they won't give it the attention it needs. So I think, you know, some of what you guys are going through, I wish you guys would have had these conversations years ago. Of course, you can't now. But I'm saying that to the other couples listening, that if you don't talk about your sex life and just assume it's okay, you shouldn't just make that assumption. But now you guys are at a place where there has been some damages in the trust especially from her end, uh, as far as trusting you. And to repair that, you have to be ready, does take some time. It's not just going to be something where, okay, it's in the past, move on, because I know I did something wrong. That's not enough to f for her to feel completely comfortable with you. So be ready for that. To rebuild the trust is going to take some time. Mm -hmm. But do you think it's possible? I think, yeah, po you know, possible, yes. Because, um, but I think also, you know, there's a few things. It's kind of like we're talking about, ruptures and the trust what matters is how big the damage was but also how strong the foundation was and your guys's relationship i get the feeling was not a, that close and so that's going to be a big part of it is how strong was the relationship before doesn't mean you can't build a stronger relationship but the stronger the relationship it is the more it could withstand and i don't know how close you and her were based on how you were describing things in the relationship and that that's going to be a big factor but again the only way things will get better is through hard work and doing the work of what you were avoiding before and i would hope you go to your own therapy too because i feel first of all maybe you're saying you might be down or depressed now that's itself very important but something in how you talked about uh, your relationship with her sexually seems like there's something that you have some issue related to being 
sexual with her, and I don't mean just her specifically, but sex in general, that's playing out. When you came to yourself in your family, do you remember sex being taboo or looked at in a certain way? Mm, I don't know. I guess growing up, uh, not in my family necessarily, but in society a little bit maybe, and maybe that had an effect on me. I don't know. Okay. I mean, did your parents Uh, talk to you about sex at all? Uh, not very much. Okay. Yeah, it's kind of funny. A lot of times in American families, they'll talk about when did your parents have the talk with you, which means when they talk to you about sex and having, you know, how babies are made or whatever it is. And for most Persian families, like we never had that talk. There was yeah. no such thing. Yeah. And so there's probably ways that sex was even not talked about that made you understand things about it. And I mentioned this before the break. There's something sometimes called the Madonna whore complex. There's idea that like there's women that you put on a pedestal and you should never be sexual with them. And then there's other women that are just sexual objects. And it's hard for some men to put those two things together that you can love and respect someone and still have sex with them. Um, sex is, doesn't have to mean you're defiling them or disrespecting someone. It could be a very beautiful experience between two people. But for a lot of men, especially a lot of Middle Eastern men, there is this idea that you can't see the same person in both ways that there's something bad about seeing someone sexually that means if you love your wife or your you know your partner you shouldn't see them in that way and this can interfere with them feeling sexual with their partner because they see that as somehow disrespectful or defiling them and that they should only think that way about some other person so maybe that's even why for you those um, massage therapist people that you mentioned it was easier for you to think sexually about them or even maybe her friend because you thought actually there's no chance of anything happening but really with her, you couldn't allow yourself to feel that sexual desire towards her. There's something interfering with that. That is possible, yeah. Yeah. So I would recommend definitely couples therapy, but also go to someone yourself to try to understand what's happening with you. And again, be ready to commit several months to this, at least uh, every week. Mm-hmm. Okay. I appreciate it. Yeah. Time. Thanks for calling. Good luck. Thank you very much. Sure. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, going into our last commercial break, you're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadir Lakwi. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to another caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Yes. yes hi. hi. Hi, thanks for calling. Yeah, um, my question is pretty quick. And I'm just going to listen to you in the radio. Um, um, I have a problem. I lived with my husband about 20-some years, and I always had problems with his drinking. Mm-hmm. And um, we get over the drinking at home. He doesn't drink that much anymore at home. But, um, but when we socialize, he still does it. And uh, it's actually... They, he's acting very embarrassing in front of my kids and myself when we are in the public. Um, public means, I mean, in Iranian societies, in parties. And uh, for me, what he does is kind of embarrassing. But probably it's not that embarrassing for other people, but for me it is. Well, what does he do? Well, he yells... Uh, calling me and just yelling, like he's acting awkward. When you say yell, you mean like he's angry or he's just, his voice is loud? 
No, it's kind of like uh, ha- trying to have fun. And, uh, yeah, and he usually doesn't know people around him when he does that. Like, very little alcohol changes him. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, uh, and that's, I tried many times talking to him. He doesn't want to change. He still continues doing that. Well, does and, does he see any problem with what he's doing? Um, looks like it, because so many times that he does it, after that, then they stay the same and say sorry. But, um... He says sorry to you? Still, yeah, he says sorry to me, and last time when he did it in front of my teenager, he did the same thing, and he said sorry to them. Okay, but what does... Again, I'm not clear what he's doing that's so wrong. He's being loud. Well, he well, he's yelling, and he doesn't know around what he's doing as a um, person. Like, uh, he's not acting normal. Mm-hmm. He's joking weird stuff, and uh, he's screaming. Or he the last time, like six, seven months ago, in front of uh, my older son, he started like saying so many bad words in the public, uh, which he doesn't do it normally. Mm-hmm. And if you say, we say, like, uh, slow down and don't drink that much, you still get more angry. Mm-hmm. So he's just totally not the same person, totally changing. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you're saying so, it's, it's happening every, how often does this happen? Every time we go to pub, to the socializing, to the party, and he's drinking. So about how, but I mean, how often, every week or once a month? Every three months, every two, every time we go, like every month, every time we go anywhere and there is alcohol, mm-hmm. he does that. Okay. So do your kids not like it? Have they told you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Last time they've been very upset. And mm-hmm. they both kind of understand not to talk to him. But I get really, really embarrassed in front of other people. Mm-hmm. And this time, uh, the reason I call you right now, because I tried so many different things, but it came to my mind to do something this time, because, like, last couple of days ago, we've been uh, to another party, and he did the same thing, but my kids weren't there. And I just thought to myself, instead of just talking to him or trying to tell him what you do and whatever, and just the same process come he comes back to me and says sorry instead of all that i just decided the next party which is next week i just go and uh, if he does something like this i just walk away just drive back home without him hmm. okay although i mean thankfully but this, this yeah. coming party yes i was thinking because i have some family members some close very close family members I was thinking to ask them to, like, after all, when I leave, they've been support. They support me and bring him home. So maybe you just find out how he acts is bothering me. Uh huh. Because he doesn't get it. Well, that's the. He just doesn't. Okay, so here, there's a few things we have to look at. One is, is what he's doing really that bad? Which I still, I get what you're saying. It seems embarrassing, but it doesn't seem like he's really hurting anyone, right? Has he? Has his drinking ever led to any really big issue, any problem other than embarrassment, but any result that really bothered um, you? Yeah, 
yeah. Before, when he was doing it at home a lot, he was getting really angry and like he's usually very sweet man, very good man. But when he did it before at home, he was starting getting angry at you, getting sensitive to me, toward me, and sometimes toward the kids. Yeah. So So eventually, he's taking care of that. He's getting much better, but in the public, he just does these things. Okay. And maybe you're still upset about those those times that he would get angry at home. So you don't, when he drinks, it I bothers am, you. I am at the same time since, see, we are Persian. So it's hard for me because he's the only one changing so much. If he was just dancing or getting happier, it was okay. Yeah. But he, he's acting very impolite and and the like, thing is he himself says my behavior is bad or no he says you, you think it's bad I'm, it's okay no he never says it's bad but he always keeps saying sorry so what is he, he saying sorry again. for oh uh, sorry because he's thinking he did something i know but but I it doesn't know. i know but it doesn't make sense to me he's saying he's saying sorry just to make you be quiet or he's actually saying sorry i don't i don't get the apology well, I think he's getting he's sorry because because he's thinking he was wrong. He shouldn't do it. But that's the part where I asked you, does he say what he did was wrong and you said no? No, no, he doesn't say that. Okay. He doesn't say that, no. But you're saying maybe he thinks it's wrong. Maybe. That's what I think. Okay. What, what is the reason he's saying sorry? I don't know. That's what I want you to try to understand. Now, what I would say is this. If... First of all, when he's drinking, I know this this party this week, you want to do something, I'll let you figure that out. But when he's already drunk, it's not a time to talk to him because even it's just not going to work, right? Obviously. But when you talk to him, I would recommend, my guess is you probably get very angry with him, which it seems like this really bothers you. So it's hard for you not to. But if you attack him, you're not going to really get anywhere because either one, he's going to get defensive or offensive Mm -hmm. and attack you or... He's just going to say sorry to make you be quiet, and but he doesn't really mean it. Mm-hmm. So I would recommend that you have to have a conversation with him, first of all, to see how does he feel about it. And also, you know, you said something before that he does this around people he doesn't know very well, so I don't know if he has some kind of social anxiety, and this also helps him feel more comfortable at the party, but then he instead makes I himself look even it. worse. You, you're absolutely right about that. I think... I think he has that social anxiety okay. and feels really free when he does that. Right. And then it's interesting because with social anxiety, people tend to have a fear of looking bad or looking stupid or making a fool of themselves. But it almost seems like mm-hmm. by drinking, he ends up doing that anyway. But anyway, that's kind of the way he's dealing with it, a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. But what I would recommend is, you know, by attacking him, you're probably not going to get anywhere. I understand it bothers you, but you don't like it. Oh, I don't attack him at all. So what do you I say? Don't. Well, I just get upset and I just get quiet and he makes me miserable in the party. I just okay. feel really... But I'm saying, no, I'm saying afterwards, when you bring it up to him, what do you say? Well, afterwards, when in the, the next day or so, or even the day, if I could, I tell him, like, you didn't act normal. What you're doing is not, it's ugly. Yeah, that's that's so, what I mean. That's what I mean by attacking. I mean, I know, I'm not saying physically you're attacking him, but when you tell mm-hmm. him, you know, those things, he's going to get defensive. It's not easy to bring it up, but I would mm-hmm. try to bring it up in a different way. If you keep saying it the same mm-hmm. way, he's going to just say sorry and then do it again the next time. 
and it doesn't really mm -hmm. change. But until he sure. himself, if he sees it as a problem, then something can happen. But as long as you're the only one that sees a problem, he's not going to care. He'll just say sorry to make you be quiet, and then next time, same thing. So I would have a different kind of conversation with him where you say, you know, uh, how did you feel about last night? Or what do you think about it? And if he says, I have no problem, it, it's hard to make someone change if they don't see a problem. Now, you can let him know how it makes you feel. But again, I wouldn't make it in an attacking way. You have to say it in a more gentle way. Because if you say that, he's just going to say whatever he needs to say to get you to be quiet. So you can say, this is how I felt. And now you're telling me you don't think he cares. That's important. In other areas, does he make you feel like he doesn't care about your feelings? Um, there are some other areas, but um, I've always been patient with him. Well, and patient is not one, good. It's kind of because what I'm patient with a lot of things. No, I know, but patient is not good. I know you're saying it like it's a good thing. But, you know, a lot of times yeah. people think what's good is in a relationship to never talk about the things that bother you. That's a sign of strength. But what they find is that actually the couples that are the happiest are the ones where they tell each other what bothers them. They don't hide their feelings. Mm -hmm. So I don't want you to look at it as a sign of strength that you don't tell him what bothers you because also a few things happens. First of all, he keeps doing those things you don't like, but also it's going to make it more likely that you're going to react more strongly because you hold on to everything. And then when you tell him, you're mm -hmm. going to explode. No, no, I tell him, I tell him, but I mean, patiently, I mean, I'm, I live with him. Okay. So that's what okay. I'm telling him, but he doesn't listen to a lot of things. Well, that's, a, is, do you feel like he cares? How does he make you feel like he cares about what you're saying? Because he's changing for a while, and then he's coming back again with the same okay. situation. Which is true of a lot of people. I mean, to expect someone to change is asking for a lot. People don't usually mm -hmm. change very easily. Uh, so I, I, to me, looking at this the idea of the drinking that you're dealing with, the more you mm -hmm. try to attack him, the more he's going to more than likely keep doing it. And of course, if we try to change someone else's behavior, it's out of our control. So... You mm -hmm. have to accept at some level this might be him and you might decide, I don't want to go with you certain social places or um, whatever else it might be. But I would rather you approach it as you and him as a team to tell him, is there anything I can do? Because it does seem like his drinking is a little bit out of his control or at least the way it affects it him. It is. It is. It's yeah. kind of, um, yeah. Or even the way you describe it, maybe he exaggerates how drunk he feels because he wants to let out something or you know, like you said, quote unquote, be no, free. No, he's usually a very quiet man. But when he drinks, he's just not the same person. Well, that's what I mean, that he almost I don't exaggerates. Want him to be quiet. I no, I understand. Hold on. Yes, I know. What I'm saying is he may be, it seems like you're saying he might exaggerate how drunk he is so that he can just be free mm -hmm. in this way because he's normally very quiet or holds things in. But he's saying, oh, now I'm drunk, so I'm going to be loud and say these words or do these things. Maybe he's really that drunk, but you said even when he doesn't drink that much, he already starts to act very different. And if he's drinking regularly, it wouldn't make sense that he gets that affected by it. So he might be holding in a lot himself too. But again, if you try to control him, you can't. You have to accept that you can't control him. Mm -hmm. I would talk to him. Make sure you, you have to talk to him in a different way than you've talked to him so far. Because if you have the same conversation with him you're well, going to get the time, same result I, honestly this time the last time we had this problem like just a couple nights ago because i thought he's not doing it anymore because we didn't go for a while three months four months we didn't go to any friend's house and i thought okay he's not gonna do it anymore 
because I always we had problems. But this time I didn't even talk about I, it at all. But here's the thing, though. I know you're saying we I had problems. I know. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. I know you're saying we had. I just have to make this quick because we have just like a minute. I know you're saying we had problem. He didn't have a problem. You didn't like it. Yeah, maybe. So we, it was, I know you're saying we, but you and him aren't seeing this the same way. So that's what I'm saying is that you don't like it. He doesn't mind. He's enjoying himself or, and it doesn't seem like he's really that bothered by what's happening. You don't like it. So you have to understand he doesn't see it the way you do. For him, he's at a party. He has a good time. He comes home. For you, you're saying I'm embarrassed. Even before you go to the party, you're probably worrying about it. When you're there, you're embarrassed. You come home, you're angry. It ruins, you can make it ruin your night. So you might have to accept that this is how he's going to be and try not to let it ruin your night or before or after the party at some point, talk to him, but don't attack him because you're going to get the same result and just have a conversation. And it might be that he won't make a change. You can't change someone else. And at some level, you might have to accept it because he might not care for him. It doesn't bother him for you. It does. And of course we would care. We would expect or want that our partner cares about how we feel even if it doesn't bother them, but we, we can't control them. Now, I do have to wrap up the show for for today. Good luck at the party. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> no, I was just wondering, the last question was... No, but I, I have to... Remember, I asked you, can I do that? Can I leave him? You, you can do... I can't tell you. I have no? to... Punishment usually doesn't work. I don't think it's going to make a difference. So I okay. would talk to him. Okay, thank you. But I have to stop the show, but good luck. Sure. All thank right. you. Thank you. All right. Thank you to all the callers and the listeners. Amir, who is here to start the show, and Farhud is here to wrap it up. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadir Lakwi. Have a wonderful day.